Because when you do relationships the world's way, uh, like contracts, you get the world's results. When you do relationships God's way, like covenants, you get God's results. God has a plan, God has a pattern for our relationships. And the closer we follow God's plan and pattern, the more our relationships succeed. The further we move away from God's plan and pattern, the more they break down. Because God's way works, the world's way doesn't. The problem is, is that since the very first relationship that God established, people have tried to do things their way, not God's way. From Adam and Eve all the way down to us, we try to do it our way. That's why the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the phrase, fall short of the glory of God there, literally means we have all failed in our relationships. The glory of God is not that God is shiny and bright and we're dull. It's not even referring to God being holy and we're not, although that's true. But the glory of God is talking about God's design for our relationships, our vertical relationships with God and our horizontal relationships with people. God says that in all those relationships, we fall short of his glorious plan. Every one of us in every relationship falls short. That's why we need redemption. That's why we need mercy, grace, forgiveness. That's why we need a Savior, because our relationships are so out of whack. And God recognizes that we all fall short in our relationships. He's known it from the very start, and that's why he extends to us his covenant grace. Today I'm going to wade into the issue of divorce and remarriage. What happens when a covenant gets broken? And some of you are in a second marriage. Maybe you've been in that marriage 5, 10, 15 years, and you're still running the tapes in your brain, trying to go back and discover, trying even maybe to defend why that first marriage ended. And some of you are in a second, maybe even a third marriage, and you thought the first one ended and it was over, but it just won't go away. Why is that? Today I'm going to bounce back and forth between a couple of passages, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. I'm going to let Scripture interpret Scripture in these difficult areas. And the verses in the Old Testament are from the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It has four chapters, 54 verses. You could read it in about 15 minutes. The whole book of Malachi is answering the question, Why, God, are you not with us anymore? So if you're wondering why God's presence isn't with you anymore, if you're wondering why God seems so far away from you, go home and read the little book of Malachi and you'll discover why. Chapter 1, Malachi says it's because you're worshiping wrong. Chapter 2, it's because your relationships are broken. Chapter 3, it's because your finances are out of whack. Chapter 4, it talks about fathers and sons not getting along. Now today we're looking at relationships, so we're going to look at Malachi chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? And so we're back to this concept of covenant again. Our relationships, particularly our marriage and family and church relationships, are to be on the basis of a covenant of commitment. And notice this verse takes the question all the way back to creation, over and over and over. When the issue of marriage and family is discussed, the Bible takes us back to creation. 
Why? Because back when God created Adam and Eve, man and woman, male and female, God created the pattern for the family. Malachi takes the issue back to creation. When Jesus is confronted with divorce and remarriage, he takes it back to creation as well. The Pharisees came to him, asked him about divorce and remarriage, and he answered and said, Have you not read? Read where? In the creation account in Genesis. That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, and here's the pattern, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become, read the phrase with me, one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Oneness is not the goal of marriage. Oneness is the result of marriage. Oneness is not something that we have to strive for. Oneness is something that happens. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And the Bible consistently takes us back to creation, back to the ancient path that we looked at last week, back to the good way that God established in the beginning. Why? Why is this so important? Because within creation we find first principles that must be followed in order for our relationships to work. Malachi goes on in verse 13. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why. You want to know why God isn't with you. Why is God far from you? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. You want to know why God isn't with you? Because God is watching your marriage to see how you treat, how you talk to each other. I mean, you can come to church and put on a nice face in public, but you leave here, God goes home with you. God sees what happens Monday through Saturday. How you treat, how you talk to your spouse affects your relationship with God. 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Look at this. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now, ladies, you're not off the hook. The same thing is true for you in the same way. You want to know why your life is so hard, why God seems so distant, why your prayers aren't getting answered. Maybe it's because of how you're treating your spouse. Malachi 2.15 Has not the Lord made them one? Why won't God get off this made them one kick? Because he made them one. You know, marriage is about more than a license, a dress, and a cake. It's about more than a honeymoon at the beach. God took two and made them into one. That's why premarital sex is dangerous. That's why extramarital sex is dangerous. That's why living together is dangerous. That's why pornography is dangerous. Because when you come together, physically something much, much deeper than just physical happens. Something spiritual happens every time. Apostle Paul even said, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become, say it with me, one flesh. 
Something spiritual and emotional happens, not just physical. So when it comes to divorce, Jesus said, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The Pharisees had come. They wanted to know, when is divorce permissible? And Jesus' answer was, permissible? I don't even think it's possible. Because you can't unone what God has made one. And those of you in a second marriage know this. You just didn't know it in this terminology. You thought, I'm divorced. She's out of my life. He's out of my life. I got that behind me. I am moving on. I am free and clear. Then you fall in love, get married again. And all this stuff from the first marriage starts showing up. And it gets frustrating, and you feel guilty, and you feel wounded, and you start to blame, and you get angry. It's like the paper from the judge just didn't make it go away. God took a great risk when he created marriage. Because the bond of marriage is so incredibly strong that even when you try to break it, when you try to get out of it, the bond sticks with you. Malachi says, in flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Why did God make the marriage bond so tight? Because he was seeking godly offering. It's for the kids. So guard yourself in spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Why does God hate divorce? Because God loves you. Because God loves your kids. Because God sees the violence and destruction that happens, that comes into people's lives because of divorce. Divorce is not part of God's creative plan. Divorce is destructive. So why is there so much of it? In Matthew 19, the Pharisees approached Jesus. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. The Pharisees said, Moses commanded us when we divorce our wives to give them a certificate of divorce. Moses did this as a protection for women. Because at that time, guys were just throwing their wives out of the house. And they had nothing. But because of that certificate, the woman could go back to her family. She could say, I'm not running away from my husband. I'm not being disobedient here. I'm not playing the harlot here. He really is through with me and wants me gone. I need your protection. It was to protect the women because the men weren't. And Jesus says, Moses didn't command you to divorce. Moses permitted you to divorce. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. Now we're back to the beginning, back to creation, the ancient path. Jesus says, this is not the pattern God established. You're falling short of God's glorious plan for marriage. Why? Why are they doing this? Because of the hardness of your heart. It always comes back to an issue of the heart. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Moses said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say that if a man even looks lustfully at a woman, he has committed adultery in his heart. Now, ladies, you are not off the hook. A man looks lustfully at a woman. A woman looks longingly at a man. It's just the difference in how we're wired up. Men look lustfully. Women look longingly. That's why there are no pictures in romance novels. 
other than Fabio on the cover. Okay? You know, because for guys, it's visual. For women, it's emotional. But whether you're looking lustfully or longingly, both men and women fall short of God's glorious plan. And Jesus recognizes our sinful nature. He recognizes our falling short of His glory. And He says we have all committed adultery in our hearts. Jesus says, Moses told you to give your wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus recognizes our sinful nature and our falling short of his glory. And he says that if you've gotten divorced and remarried, you've committed adultery. Now, when Jesus makes these shocking statements, when, you know, when you've lusted after a woman or longed for another man, you've committed adultery. If you've gotten divorced and remarried, you've committed adultery. When Jesus says this shocking stuff, we think, surely he couldn't mean it. We just didn't understand what he said. Surely Jesus didn't mean if you get a divorce and then get remarried, you've committed adultery. There's got to be some other explanation for this. And we start looking for the reason why this doesn't apply to our situation. We start examining the circumstances to see why we're the exception. We try to find the loophole, the escape clause that will justify our divorce. We start rehearsing the events. The, the circumstances, the betrayal, the neglect. We go back and we try and unwind the marriage. Well, we never should have gotten married in the first place, or it only lasted a few months or a few years, so it doesn't even count. But let's go back and look at the reaction of the disciples. Let's look at the reaction of the guys who were standing right there when Jesus said it. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. The disciples were standing right there. They heard Jesus' words about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and their conclusion was, this is too hard. The standard is too high. We can't measure up. It would be better just to never get married. And when they say that to Jesus, notice that, that Jesus didn't backtrack on his statements. He didn't say, oh, no, 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 you guys misunderstood me. That's not what I was saying. Jesus didn't rephrase what he was saying. He didn't refute what the disciples said he said. Instead, he affirmed it. I, I like this in the message paraphrase. The language is, is just so clear. But Jesus said, not everyone is mature enough to live a married life. It requires a certain aptitude and grace. Circle the word grace. Marriage isn't for everyone. Some, from birth seemingly, never give marriage a thought. Others never get asked or accepted. And some decide not to get married for kingdom reasons. Marriage is hard. Marriage is difficult. Marriage isn't for everybody. Some people decide not to even do it. But if you're capable of growing into the largeness of marriage, do it. Now you may wonder, on the basis of Jesus' words, where am I at? If I'm in a second marriage or a third marriage, am I living in a perpetual state of adultery? Does this mean I need to get out of this marriage? 
that's not what Jesus is saying. That the verb tense, the language wouldn't, doesn't indicate that. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to you. When you come to faith in Christ or when you discover God's truth, if you're single, you stay single. If you're married, you stay married. If you're divorced, just hold on. If you're widowed, you're widowed. This is not an excuse to end another marriage. This is just an explanation of the situation that you find yourself in. This is useful information to help you get it right this time. And for some of you, this finally explains what you've been feeling all along. You just didn't have the words, the terminology to even be able to address it. But now you see the reality of the situation. Don't use Christ as an excuse to jump around in your relationships. Instead, let Christ help you make the relationship that you are in work. So if I'm divorced and remarried, where do I stand in relation to Christ? Well, you stand alongside all the other adulterers because in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ nailed us all. We're all sinners. We're all adulterers in desperate need of a Savior. And if any of us are going to make our relationships work, we have to do it with covenant grace because we all fall short of God's glorious plan for our relationships. And because we fall short, we tend to operate within our relationships on the basis of guilt. We feel guilty for our shortcomings. We assign guilt to other people because of their shortcomings. That's why we so desperately need covenant grace. Covenant grace. Okay, I want everybody just to take a deep breath in through the nose. Breathe out through the mouth. Okay, this has been hard. This is the good part. This is the good part. Covenant grace. Number one, covenant grace changes how you relate to people. I mean, don't think guilt doesn't affect your relationships. And grace affects your relationships as well. There is a world of difference between relationships fueled by guilt and relationships fueled by grace. That's why Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. And I just think it is so cool that the Bible uses the same language for falling short of the glory of God as it does for not falling short of the grace of God. Falling short of the glory of God is the problem. Not falling short of the grace of God is the solution. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And uh, again, we see this grace and glory stuff, it's all about relationships. I mean, if you operate your relationships on the basis of guilt, a root of bitterness is going to grow up in your relationships, and a root of bitterness doesn't just affect you, it defiles many. A bitter divorce affects you. It affects your ex, it affects your kids, affects your parents, affects your ex's parents, affects your friends, your ex's friends, co-workers, neighbors, aunts, uncles, cousins, everybody on Facebook and Twitter. I mean, you've all seen it. You've all seen it. Your guilt and bitterness isn't just about you. It's about everybody. And covenant grace isn't just for you. It's for everybody. Covenant grace changes 
how you relate to people, even your ex. Number two, covenant grace changes how you relate to God. Guilt separates you from God. Grace draws you close to God. Because of the grace of God, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Draw a big dark circle around that little three-letter word now. Because we need to understand that now there is no condemnation. But we also need to understand that now is different than then. What makes the difference between now and then? Now there's no condemnation Then there was condemnation. What makes the difference is therefore. Therefore in Romans 8.1 is referring to the tremendous work of Christ in taking people who fall short of God's glory, paying the penalty for them on the cross, so that now there's no condemnation. God is taking our covenant-breaking nature and redeeming us out of that, giving us new life, a new opportunity to no longer fall short Through Christ, we are able to keep our word, keep our vows, keep our covenants. Now, there is no condemnation. But we need to recognize that before there was, somebody had to pay for our lusting, longing, adulterous attitude. And that someone is either us or Jesus Christ. And by God's grace, Christ took the payment for our sins. So now... We don't have to be condemned. We can be free from that condemnation. If we confess our sin, if we put our faith in Christ, if we repent of our behavior, if we move close in on God's plan for our relationships, there is now no condemnation. Grace changes how you relate to God. Number three, grace changes how you are used by God. I mean, how could God use somebody as inglorious as me? How could God use someone who falls so short of his plan? Why doesn't God just give up on me? God doesn't give up on me. God doesn't give up on you. God doesn't give up on us. God gives us grace. Paul said, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I. But the grace of God that was with me. By God's grace, you can make your relationships work. Paul says, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Now, I don't know the details of your situation, but I know you've fallen short, because we all have. And I don't know, I I know you feel some guilt because we all do. And I know your relationships are hard because they all are. But I also know that God offers you His covenant grace because He offers it to all of us. So you just need to exchange your guilt for God's grace. How do you do that? Well, guilt can serve a good purpose if it drives me to God's grace. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Notice the difference again between God's way and the world's way. The world's way is to wallow in your sorrow, wallow in your guilt until you kill all your relationships. Worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow brings repentance. We change our behavior. We are saved by God's grace and we have no regrets. How do we get there? Four things. Number one, really receive God's forgiveness. 
You know, talking to people as a pastor, that they, they will tell you they believe God loves them. And they're right. And they will tell you they believe Christ died for their sins. And they're right. And they will tell you they believe that God has forgiven them. And they're right. But if you probe just a little bit deeper, they will also tell you that there are one or two things that they have done that they feel God still holds against them. They are carrying a load of guilt in certain areas. And one of those areas is often divorce. That's why you must really receive forgiveness. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Now, to really receive something, you've got to let go of whatever else you're holding on to. And too many of us are trying to receive God's covenant grace with our hands and our hearts clinging tightly to our guilt. You have got to let go of your guilt and grab onto God's grace. Really receive His forgiveness. Number two, to receive covenant grace, you must eliminate the if-only thoughts. If only this hadn't happened, if only that had happened, if only I had done this, if only he or she had done that... If only locks you into guilt and regret. You've got to eliminate the if onlys. We use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God, fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. You see the intensity of the language here? powerful, smashing, tearing down. It's a demolition and a a reconstruction, uh, uh, fitting things into the structure of life shaped by Christ. Now here's the deal with if-onlys. You never get rid of them. I mean, it's not that they're not back there somewhere. It's just that they're not living anymore. It's a scar, not a wound. When I was in junior high, I had a 7-inch incision made in my hip, and a surgeon put in three three 3-inch long metal screws up into my femur to hold the ball in place. And so to this day, I have a significant scar on my leg. scar has never gone away. The scar will never go away. But truthfully, I rarely notice it. And sometimes when I do notice it, I'm surprised by it. What's that? Oh, it's my scar. Okay? A scar is different than a wound. A wound is evidence of injury. A scar is evidence of healing. Covenant grace can turn wounds into scars. Number three, covenant grace turns regret into motivation. He comforts us in all our troubles so that, circle so that, there is a reason for our suffering, so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. God wants to take your ugly regrets, bring you to a place of forgiveness and healing so that you can show other people how to get there too. God wants to heal your marriage so you can provide hope to other people in difficult marriages. I'll tell you folks, God wants to heal your divorce so you can show other people how to to be healed and find help and hope in that. Turn the regret of the past into motivation for the future. Turn the if only into what if. What if. That leads to the fourth one. 
let God, and I don't have a fill-in for you here, because I want you to make it personal. What is the area of your life where you need God's covenant grace to come in and heal you? In the Gospels, there's a story of Jesus attempting to wash the disciples' feet. It's a humble act of service on the part of Christ. But as Jesus came to wash Peter's feet, Peter balked. Oh, no, Lord, don't wash my feet. And Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you're not part of what's going on. And Peter said, then wash all of me. And Jesus said, Peter, just let me wash your feet, okay? (laughs) I mean, isn't it interesting how often we are like Peter? We think we see our lives from a better perspective than God does. We think we know better than God what we need in our lives. We think we know what God needs to heal and what God needs to leave alone. But all of us have an area where we need to let God. Let God show you where he wants to remove your guilt and regret and replace it with covenant grace. And please, don't leave it blank. If you leave it blank, it's vague, it's uncertain, and the enemy wants the uncertainty because uncertainty sucks the power out of it. So let God tell you, let God identify your area of guilt and regret because when you name it, then you can confess it, God can forgive it, you can repent from it, and God can turn that wound into a scar by healing it. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. I thank you that Christ is willing to just wade into the gritty, difficult issues of our life to identify our sin and to just pour out his grace. God, we are so wounded, we are so broken, we have wandered so far from your glorious plan for our relationships. We need you to bring us back to the ancient way, the good way. And God, the only way we can get there is through your grace. If you're here today, I'd invite you just to invite God to move in, to to help him help you understand the reality of your situation and the healing that needs to occur in your very soul. And that you would allow him to mend, to bind up, to heal, to strengthen, to turn your wounds into scars, to turn your regret into motivation, and to help you to live as close to his glory as possible. God, we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.